Beloved, if you would, join me again in prayer. Let's bring our needs to God, trusting that he hears our prayers. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, we come to you as your people gathered again this Sunday. And we again come to you needy. Father, we do not have what we need on our own. Even our very assembly reminds us of this. Father, we need you. We need your presence and work in our lives. Father, we ask that you would work in us. Father, we ask that you would work in our church. Father, we ask that you would grow our congregation, not necessarily in ways that the world might easily see immediately, Father, but in ways that you see that you would grow us in Christ, into the fullness of who Christ is. Father, we pray that we would grow in our love for him. We pray that we would grow in our obedience to him. We pray that we would grow in our unity with one another. Lord, may we mature, we pray. We need you. Father, again this morning as we come together and as we think about our church, again we're reminded that we are many individuals comprising one person before you. And so we together pray over members that are in our church, thanking you for the many members who have joined with us to build this body. Father, we pray this morning for our brother Kurt Marshall. We're so grateful for Kurt's love for you and for this church. And as he works with and meets many each, people each week through his work, we pray that you would equip him to deal well with others. Father, we pray that you would allow Kurt to be a light of the gospel uh, to those he meets and those he speaks to. Father, we pray for our, our sister Kelly Thomas, and we thank you for how she serves her husband and her children so faithfully. We pray that she would treasure Christ and know him more dearly each day. Father, we thank you for our sister Sue Medley, and we, we thank you for the joy it is to have her in our midst. And Father, we haven't forgotten the loss of her dear husband, Jerry. We thank you that he is with you. We thank you for how Sue has modeled for many of us how to look to you even in the pains of widowhood. Father, we pray that you would fill Sue with joy and, and comfort from Christ again this week. Father, we pray for Nick Rummel, and we thank you for his evident love for you. We pray that this week, as he loves Kat, that he would live with her in an understanding way and that he would honor you in his marriage and in his work Father, may his affection for Christ grow deeply each day. Father, we not only pray for these church members among us, but we pray for the church members who lead us, who are pastors and shepherds. We pray for Pastor Keith this morning. Father, we thank you for our, how our brother Keith has modeled servanthood in our church so well, even as he leads and even as he shepherds our body. Father, we pray that you would 
preserve Keith, that you would give him strength and energy, that he would be found faithful before you each day, that he would commune with you each day, even this week. Father, there's so many other members that I haven't even mentioned. And we remember that many members together make up this body. Father, we pray that we would be more faithful in loving one another individually as members of this body. We pray that you would grow us up into Christ. Father, do that now, even now, as we open your word. We need your word today. We pray that we would hear from you through your word. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law, we pray. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it's a, another average Sunday morning, and your alarm goes off. And you begin your very real-world trek from your pillow to the pew. Uh, the journey likely begins with a groggy shower before scouring together a breakfast for yourself, maybe a bowl of cereal for the kids. On this journey, if you have kids, chances are, it seems that every force in the ecosystem of your family consistently runs slowest on Sunday mornings. I mean, the family just never slips into the car five minutes early, waiting with seats buckled and happy, smiling faces for you to leave for church. Just not the way it works. If you're married, inevitably the ride to church is a great time to fit in a little argument. It's just enough to open up some issues, and yet not enough time to reach any real closure on those issues. Really setting you up for what you're coming to. And as you come into the building, your, your mind likely races a hundred different places. You've finished a pack week behind you, you're staring down Monday, looming in front of you. People and friends are all around you. By the time you make it into the service, mentally, you're coming in on two wheels. And if you already didn't have a thousand distractions already, now you're, you're perfectly set up to, to sit down in your seat and think about who you need to connect with, which, by the way, is not necessarily altogether a bad thing, which I'll argue in a moment. Or you're, you're perhaps situated to sit down and, and just breathe for just a moment. You're happy to, to sink back into your chair and enjoy the service. Now, I'm somewhat humorously relating uh, to this fight that all of us face just to get into this room every Sunday morning. And yet, it is a good fight. It's right to think about that trek from the pillow to the pew. We'll come back to it in a few minutes. But it's a worthy trek. It's a worthy journey to make. It's right that all around the world, millions of Christians are simultaneously going through this Sunday morning uh, obstacle course, you could say, uh, to get into this service, to, to gather together. But why is it so right? Why is it so fitting to prioritize this hour? Certainly there are easier ways to hear good music, all of us can sing along ourselves in our shower each morning. There are more convenient ways to have information transferred into our minds. Or certainly you can easily pray without even having to ever leave your pillow. 
Why is gathering so important for a church? Consider a provocative statement. The church is not a group of people, merely, but rather an assembly of people. Gathering is not only central to what we do, but who we are. Obviously, now, the church is not less than a group of people. I know that. Obviously, the church is not less than a group of people that are being brought to life by God's word, as we studied two weeks ago from Ezekiel. Now, obviously, the church is not less than a group of people who are affirming one another's faith and covenanting together, as we saw last week. It's not less than these things, but biblically, a church cannot be thought about rightly apart from the fact that we are an assembly, a gathering. And I want to persuade you of this today from the Bible. I want to potentially give you new lenses to look through as you view each week what is happening here together as we meet. I want to lead you to worship and joy as you see in Scripture who we are. As a church. Friends, our community, our, our covenanted relationships with one another all flow out of this central picture that we are an assembly together before the face of God. To help us think with this about this today, I've chosen to start with just one verse, with, which Ricardo just read for us. Matthew 18, 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Let's answer three questions together. Let's answer what group is spoken of here, what are they doing, and what is promised. And I pray that as we look at this verse, God will give us together a greater love for him and for his assembly. So number one, what is the group that is spoken of here in this verse? Matthew eighteen twenty. Now as good Bible students that you are, Many of you will be immediately concerned when a preacher gets up and picks one verse out of context of an entire passage, as well you should be. Unfortunately, with this verse, not only do preachers often use this verse out of context, but many of us often quote this verse quickly out of context, thinking that if ever two Christians are together, God will meet with them. Now, certainly we know God is omnipresent. He's not limited by size or space. And so, yes, he's with you when you pray with your friends at Starbucks this week. But here, his special presence is promised to a special group. The clear context of what this passage is talking about is the gathering together of one local church. And this is what we saw last week. When we, if you remember, you were here last week, we talked about this two, these two pair, this two pair of passages, these two passages side by side, Matthew 16 and then Matthew 18. And we saw how Jesus was teaching about his church that he will establish. And here, this is the group that he's talking about. So here in Matthew 18, Jesus is explaining how his church will work to preserve repentance and, and restoration among ourselves. You can do, look just up in verse 17. If someone doesn't turn from sin, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. 
Or then in verse 18, we see the language that we discussed last week from the keys of the kingdom. The same language that connected back to when Jesus said, I will build my church. Friends, it's the church that is in view here. In this passage, the the church is gathered to exercise their authority on the nature of true repentance. The emphasis of two or three that we see in this verse relates back to the need for multiple witnesses of a faithful confession. We see that earlier in the passage. So as we'll get to in a minute, the, the point is that the church body, regardless of how small that body is, has authority when they gather because they are witnesses, two or three of them even, together, witnessing a, a true confession when they, got, when they meet. And so whether it's two or, or 3,000 people gathering together in Florida, or whether it's two or three believers gathering together in a home in Afghanistan as a church, they are witnesses of true faith and repentance. So what type of group is spoken of here? Well, in context, clearly it's the church that Jesus is thinking of. Number two, what are they doing? Now, this is the point I want to just spend most of my time on. See, there, there's so much we could say here. We could go back and look at the context more and teach on church discipline, which seems to be the subject of the text. I want to emphasize one very simple point from the text. Churches, even very small ones, gather in his name. Verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. What a glorious four words these are. Gathered in my name. What a wealth of truth is reflected on these, in these words that we could meditate on. Friends, we're reminded here that God's people gather. This word, to gather, means to assemble. To bring together many parts into one. Into one physical, identifiable space. The words mean... The word means to call together, to convene, to to congregate. It's the word we get congregation from. To collect together in one space, to form an assembly. Here's the point. When Jesus looks to put his presence, his authority in a place on earth, he looks to a gathering of people. So... Jonathan Lehman, who was the, the source of my illustration last week on the embassy that helped so many of you, uh, is, he says this. He says, the gathered church is where heaven comes to earth. So, so when you think about that embassy that we talked about last week that, that stands there to representing this, this far-off kingdom, that embassy gives authentic passports of authentic citizenship. Well, that, that embassy is actually the geography of that foreign kingdom. The moment you step into a United States embassy, regardless of where you are in the world, you are stepping into the, the land of the United States. In a similar way, Jesus says, when there is a gathering in my name, that is the geography of heaven. Christ's kingdom becomes visible to us in a true assembly of his people. Well, this idea is so simple 
and yet so important that I want to make sure that you see. I want to make sure that what I'm saying is landing with you right now. Uh, So let me just, instead of just pulling it from this one verse, let me just pause here and let's think about how prominent this theme is across the whole Bible. One book telling the same story. God meets with his assembled people. You can go all the way back to Genesis. You can think of the Tower of Babel. Mankind sought to assemble, but not in the name of God, in their own name. And so because of their sin, they were scattered across the earth. And so God promises to Abraham to build his people. And interestingly, when Isaac retells this promise in Genesis 28.3, he says, May the God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you might become an assembly of peoples. That's the promise given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so God begins working from the beginning to gather people back together and to himself. And so we're not surprised when we get to Exodus 3.12 and God promises to assemble together his people at Mount Sinai. All Israel, he says, were to come together this event, this, this great assembly at Mount Sinai was so significant in the history of the people of God that Sinai, as one theologian says, became the, the paradigm for gatherings of God's people across the whole Old Testament. So much so that in Deuteronomy, three times over, God refers to this, this gathering at Mount Sinai as the day of assembly. God met with his people as they assembled before him. Then the the people of God traveled through the Exodus, and God ordained a a tent of meeting, which became the tabernacle, and it was where the people were to come and gather as the people of God around this tent, where God would come and meet with his people. And priests would be identified to lead in this worship of this assembly. Uh, This continues on so much that as we follow follow throughout the Old Testament, we see again and again, God meets with his assembled people. Even even just this morning when we read, uh, when Dick read uh, for us from Nehemiah 8, Ezra assembled the people of God together. Did you notice Dick said that, that the people gathered as one man before God? Regardless, we see him coming together Uh, We we see us, God's people, coming together like a kingdom comes to gather before the king. So that by the time we get to the New Testament, the reader of this one book is left wondering, where will this assembly be? And we find it's it's no longer out Mount, Mount Sinai or Mount Gerizim. In fact, Jesus tells the woman at the well, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, Will you worship the Father? The hour is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So Legan Duncan powerfully writes, the place of new covenant worship is no longer inextricably tied to a geographical location, to to a physical structure, but now it's tied in the New Testament to a gathered people. Now, let me just pause here. I think most Americans might get this wrong. 
I know I certainly once did. Uh, we know that the, the temple period ceased. The Old Testament is past. But then we act like there's no replacement to that gathering, which is half true. So hear me carefully. You can slip out of bed tomorrow morning and approach God Almighty from beside your bed and be heard. That is a new covenant privilege for you. That's true. But that's not all that God emphasizes when he talks in the New Testament of meeting with his people. It's not fundamentally individual. It's not fundamentally you alone before God. That's not his plan in the New Testament. The New Testament emphasizes a spiritual assembly really in two ways. Let me tell you what both of them are. The first one is this this far-off assembly. The, the, the New Testament's emphasis on a heavenly assembly. The heavenly universal church gathered together in Zion. So we read this in Hebrews 12, 22 and 23. You have come to Mount Sinai, Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all. But then there's this second assembly that the New Testament emphasizes, where the heavenly church is made visible here on earth. It's in local congregations, local churches like ours. Friends, that's what we see in today's passage. When we read, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. In the New Testament, specific, identifiable, embodied people, local churches gather together as a foretaste of that future gathering. And so across the New Testament, if you were to just read through the New Testament as a whole, you'd see congregations regularly assemble as God's people to meet with him. This is the, the priority uh, of, of Hebrews 10, that the writer of Hebrews wants to make so clear that, that some people have just seemed to, to forget this gathering and have neglected uh, to come and prioritize being in this room for this assembly and have neglected it, as is the habit of some. Okay, so I've just kind of sketched this overview for, overview for you. I've just been trying to show you that, that God's people gather. It's what we do. It's who we are, in fact. And when I say this, this doesn't mean that we stop being the church when we leave from here. Uh, and so it, Scripture certainly gives us images of the church going out and, and scattering. But the idea is that in order to scatter, we must first gather. Christopher Ashe says it so well this way. He says, Our local church is not a collection of individuals who sometimes assemble, but it is an assembly whose members may sometimes be dispersed. He says, We could scrap Bible studies and still be a church. We might be an impoverished church, sure but still a church. But if we fail to gather in our main meetings under the preached word of God, we cease to be a church. Friends, this is so true that when Jesus wanted to establish his people on earth, 
you know what word he chose? He chose the word in Greek, ekklesia. And over time, we've translated that to become the word church. But the Greek word very simply means assembly. Jesus says, I will build my assembly, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. God has chosen for us to be his assembly. This has so many implications for us. Let's just pause here and think a little bit about applications for us when we meet together. When you come into church, do you come happy to be with others? Sometimes there's this this wrong uh, mystical idea in American Christianity that to really focus on God, to meet with him, you need to come and, and close your eyes and act as if you are the only person in the room. You and God. Forget everything else. It's just you and him. This is so unbiblical. I hope you see that. I'm not saying it's wrong to close your eyes or to help you focus at times. I'm not saying it's wrong to bow your heads. But when we worship God as a church, we worship him as an assembly together. His people together as one voice coming before him. And so uh, we are coming as not those who are alone, but those who are together saying, yes, I'm not alone in my worship of this king. There's all of these other people together saying, Jesus is king. This is what the assembly is. Don't miss the joy of being in this room with others who are committed to this same worship. Or or another application. When you come to church, do you come with the posture of a participant in the assembly or of an observer of a performance? Observers come into the room late. They, they leave early. They, they, they sit back uninvolved, and they watch passively. But participants, oh, they come ready to, to fully engage, to, to listen actively and attentively, to, to pray yourself when prayers are being led from the front. This is one reason why it's so great for us to say, like we see in Scripture, amen, when we hear a, a prayer being offered that we agree with. We, we stand and we sing intentionally, not just mumbling along, but wanting our voices to be part of this assembly. We understand that the, the primary instrument in this room is not just the ones on stage, but rather the voices that are gathering to worship God. Uh, Matt Merker writes a helpful book on this corporate worship in that he, he says this. He says, the real action is in the pew, not on the platform, which we wrongly think of as a stage. We are God's temple. The pew is the platform. We are kingdom of priests offering praises to our God. Friends, this is the idea of of what we are. No longer is there just one priest leading the assembly, but God has chosen to make all of us a kingdom of priests that come together and lead and partake in this worship of our king. It's central to who we are. It's what we do. All right, I've I've camped out on this one word long enough. Let's go back to Matthew 18, 20. Let me answer my my third question. What What is promised in this passage? What do we see promised? 
For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Let me just focus our attention on this phrase, in our name, and there I am among them. Friends, we assemble in the name of King Jesus. Uh, To do something in the name is to do something in his authority. It's to do something consistent with his character. As Christ's body, we gather in his authority, consistent with his character, which is actually exactly what uh, verse 17 had emphasized, the authority that he gives us. You know, uh, Jamie and I used to live in Cairo. I spoke of this last week. When, when living in Egypt, we would enjoy walks around the city together. Perhaps on a date night, we would get a sitter for the kids and, and go out and, and take a walk. Uh, and we especially enjoyed walking around the neighborhood that had all the embassies in our city. If you walked in that neighborhood, you would, not, you would find not just one embassy, but you'd find just a whole area of them kind of grouped together. Uh, it was filled with all different uh, diplomatic outposts of other kingdoms. Each one represented a different nation. And as we would pass each embassy, we could easily see the flag, which was hanging over each one. And we'd guess what flag that was, what country it was referring to, try to figure out uh, where the people were from. Each banner would show the allegiance of that physical space, where their allegiance was and who it was to. Often they would even mention the king or the sovereign over the nation that was being represented. Church, it's the same also for us. The banner hanging over our embassy, over our assembly, is King Jesus. We gather under his banner. We gather under his flag. We come not in our own Identity, not claiming our own citizenship, but claiming citizenship in his kingdom. Saying, we're here together in his name. This is what it means to be, speak of being gathered in his name. It's Christ that brings us together. And so it's Christ that we are celebrating and proclaiming as we take the Lord's Supper in his name. It's Christ's name that that we baptize in, as he told us to go and baptize in the one name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's Christ that that we preach every morning as we preach Christ crucified. It's his name, his authority. Uh, This glorious promise is that Christ will meet with his people. The beauty of this assembly throughout Scripture is that when we hang this banner as his people, Uh, gathering in his name before his throne, he promises to meet with us. This is where he shows up. Did you see it in the text? Where two or three are gathered in my name? There am I among them. Jesus is is speaking of that, that special authority that he gives to you all right now to his assembled body. He's identifying himself with his gathered assembly. He's saying, they're with me, and and I'm with them. I'm their God. They are my people. Just like Yahweh did in the Old Testament. You know, there's this uh, wonderful place in 1 Corinthians 14 
where, where Paul is teaching the Corinthian church how to gather, how to get together, how to do it orderly, how to do it in an edifying way, using the gifts. And he explicitly refers to the whole church coming together for worship. And that their worship is to be this type of testimony to the outside world. Uh, that, that anyone that comes into that church would be convicted and, and called into account. And he says that they would fall on their face, this outsider who comes and sees this worship, and will worship God and declare that God is really among you. God among us. Our meeting with God is not just meeting with one another. We are meeting before God. He is among us so much that it, it tells the outside world that he is here and he is real. You know, if, if you're here today, maybe that actually fits you. Maybe you're a, an outsider or a visitor that's just kind of come in and watching this service and seeing what this church is all about. Friends, we would want you to know as a visitor here today what's most important about what we're saying in our worship. We together as, as a church are saying that we need God because we have all sinned against him. We've, we've wronged God. We've offended him. We've not done what God has created us to do. So, so much so that we deserve death. We deserve separation from God. We deserve eternal punishment. The good news of the gospel is that God didn't leave us to suffer what we deserve. Instead, he sent his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came and he lived the perfect life that none of us could live. He, he, he died on the cross in our place as the perfect substitute for our sin before God. And then he died, and not only died, but he rose again from the grave, showing that he's more powerful over death itself. When he did this, Scripture says he redeemed a people for himself. He was buying us back not just individuals, but he was looking to his church, all of those who would be his, and he was together buying them back to himself so that they could be in right standing with God and have eternal life. I just encourage you, if you're here today and, and you're hearing this for the first time, talk to someone today about how you can be part of those people that have been bought back that you could be made right with God by confessing your sin, by re repenting, turning from your sin, and by placing your faith not in what you do, but in what Christ has done for you. This is what we celebrate today. Friends, we gather together to celebrate this Christ who has done this. We gather together under his banner. And he promises that as his people corporate do that, he will meet with us here. This truth was so well known by the Puritans, I can't help but quote one of, one of them. David Clarkson describes our, our gathering as a church beautifully. If you're willing to 
uh, follow along, it's, it's just gold to hear what he says. He says this, he says, The Lord engages himself to let forth, as it were, a stream of his comfortable, quickening presence to every particular person that fears him. So God reveals his presence to all Christians who fear him. But when many of those particulars, when many of those individuals join together to worship God, then those several streams, as it were, kind of picture small streams or brooks kind of flowing out from all different places. Those several streams are united and they meet as one. So that the presence of God, which enjoyed in private, is but a stream. But in public becomes a river, a river that makes glad the city of God. This is what God is doing when we gather together. We are joining all of our voices, all of our affections, all of our attention together, as it were, as many different streams, all flowing into one river. That is this church, this assembly. And we are finding ourselves, as a united people, happy in God. This is where we enjoy Christ's presence as we praise him together. Uh, you know, earlier I gave a couple of pieces of application for the fact that we assemble together, that, that there's many of us here, and it's not just you yourself. Let me just give a few more pieces of application on the fact that we are not only assembling with others, but we are assembling with others before God. I wonder if this truth grips you as you come to church, whether here or somewhere else, it, does that grip you as you come in before him each Sunday? Uh, I wonder, do you, do you approach Sunday mornings uh, in a way that reflects the posture of a people coming before their king? Just to be clear, I'm not saying that we shouldn't happily greet one another before the service, even to catch up before the service. I'm not saying this room necessarily has to be silent before we gather. It's right to welcome visitors. It's right to, to speak to one another, other parts of this body. But it's worth thinking about. Do you come into this room preparing to meet not only with others here, but with God in this assembly? Bruce Case and I were reflecting over this earlier this week uh, as we got lunch together. And we're just asking ourselves, what kind of posture would a people have who are waiting to hear from their good and benevolent king? As, as they get together and the, the king is going to speak, they're going to see him and, and meet with him, what would be their posture? Uh, surely a sense of joy and excitement would be present, but also at times a sense of, of reverence, I imagine. Friends, uh, what if before the service... You, you not just came in and sought to catch up with a friend or wait till the service starts, but what if you busied your heart preparing to give your affection and attention to Christ who has promised to meet with you? What if even when you met with someone, uh, you took a minute to not just catch up with them, maybe to even pray with them, to stop and pray about the service that, that you're walking into, asking for God's blessing on it, Maybe praying for those who, who are leading the service or 
uh, praying for one another to have your uh, affections quickened as you see God through his word again. You know, there's just so many different applications that could come from this one truth that we gather to meet with God. Uh, you could talk together about this uh, over lunch today, just trying to think through what other things would this impact if you truly believe that each Sunday you are coming before God Almighty. Uh, perhaps you'd silence your so phones before the service starts on Sunday mornings. Or just turn them off altogether even. Perhaps you'd listen to worship songs the night before, thinking through what you'll sing to God. Uh, perhaps you'd consider spending time in prayer in the morning before you come to church, making sure your heart is, is ready to join in this assembly. Perhaps you'd be sure to confess sin in advance, uh, making sure that your heart is, is right before God, that there's nothing unconfessed between you and him. Perhaps uh, you would make sure that if there's any disunity with another member of this church, even the slightest disunity, that you would just go out of your way to make sure things are, are well between both of you. Uh, or if you've had that fight with your spouse on the way to church, you do what you can to, to try to soften it before the beginning of the service. What does it look like for you to come into this room ready to meet with the king? We should conclude. Uh, I, I grew up in Maryland, just north of Baltimore, and my, my father was a musician. He was a piano tuner. He was a musician of various sorts. And he rightly had a, an appreciation for the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, which met at the Meyerhoff Symphony Hall. And uh, on a regular schedule, the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, the BSO, would host open rehearsals, uh, giving a chance to go and you could listen in on a professional orchestra rehearse. These rehearsals... Honestly, they were just majestic in their own right. It was a budget way to see a great show. Uh, they showcased the glory of these musicians gathering and each one adding their part to, to the redounding symphony. And yet, that, that open rehearsal, even its, in all its glory, it just still constantly was, was pointing to this coming culmination of the real symphony itself, which would be bigger, which would have more in attendance, which would be glorious, which would honestly sound nearly perfect. Oh, friends, this is us each Sunday. We join regularly, weekly, uh, to glory as participants who are preparing for eternity. We have the greatness of our assembly mirroring an even greater greatness coming for us. And at the center of this assembly is the king, the one who promises to meet with us, the one who one day, when it's time for the actual symphony, with people from every tribe and tongue and nation gathered together before his throne, the one who one day will be at the very center of that gathering. And so, church, we assemble 
looking towards that final day. I wonder, what kind of church will we be as we gather each week? Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage in your word, which is true. We thank you for the promise that you have made to meet with your people as we gather in your name. Father, we praise you for your kindness to not be a distant and far-off king, but a king who, throughout Scripture, seems eager and, and ready to come to us, even in our sin, even in our unworthiness, you want to meet with us. What a privilege this is. We look together to Christ. May our, may our church together be one that prizes, that puts a privilege on this holy assembly in the name of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.